Today on the show, we're going to go back to this college equation, how to do college for less. We're going to try to bring in our feedback, some additional thoughts for Brian, land on things that we may have missed the first time around, talk about opportunities that are available for anyone, regardless of your GPA. And in particular, we need to cover PSAT, National Merit Scholarship, Residential Advisor, so many different things here that are available for any college student not reliant on your GPA. We're going to bring in our thoughts and feedback from the community. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Guys, this episode was so action-packed that we took an incredible amount of time creating really, really detailed show notes to share with you because we know that this is an episode that you're going to be leaning on and sharing with a friend. And to help me with this, I have my co-host, Brad, here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, hey, Jonathan. I'm doing quite well. And yeah, I think this episode 114, you and I were just so enthused about it. I think it's going to be one of those we look back on a couple years from now and say, Wow, that is still a top 10 episode in the entire catalog of Chooseify. I mean, that's the level that we thought Brian brought it. I mean, this is such a crucially, crucially important thing for hundreds of thousands of families out there. And and hopefully a lot of people can save some money with us. And you know, Brad, the place I wanted to start is actually talking about the GPA. And honestly, just starting with the fact that GPAs in 2019 and beyond aren't what they were in 1999. Yeah, Jonathan, I hear you. I mean, this is an eye-opener, right? For us who went to high school. I mean, in my case, 20 years ago, you a, a little bit less. Dude, what I mean, was this, your GPA in the 90s? Like, seriously, uh, like, that's what I meant to ask you in that past yeah. episode. I suspect you were uh, slightly higher than mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were on like a, a hundred point scale. And yeah, I mean, I, I did pretty well. I'm not sure I was somewhere in the 98 range or something, but it certainly wasn't like the 106 that he's talking about now, right? I was in the 90% that makes the top 10% possible. Still doing my part, still here on the team, still participating. But I think we were at a slightly different level and oh, probably looking funny. at different schools. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is funny. You know, you've mentioned over the last maybe 50 episodes just in passing, like a good GPA. Oh, you mean like a three, five or something? And in my mind, I'm like, oh, Jonathan, that's so cute and quaint. So like, cute. <laughs> <laughs> I still felt pretty good about my three, five. Hey, this is a guy that's an AB student. That was in my mind. That's what I did. Hey, I'm not taking the AP classes because, um, yeah, that's not my thing, but I'm an AB student. It was kind of enlightening to hear Brian kind of pull the curtain back and say, 20 years later, if you're a three, five, you're doing something wrong. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it, it is pretty crazy. And let's be honest here. You got into Virginia Tech. You got a doctorate. You had a great six-figure salary. So it's not like the, the three, five hurt you all that much, but it, it is just a different world. And I think that's an important point here. And what Brian said, and this is not fear-mongering or anything, but GPA is important, especially in this world of great inflation. You have to be very careful to not overextend yourself, as he was saying, with extracurriculars and three sports 
if it's going to mean you're getting multiple C's. Now, your life is not ruined if you get a C or two, but clearly, as he described, it is going to hurt your chances of getting into top tier colleges. So again, it's not fear mongering, but it's just the point that GPA matters and it matters more now than it ever did. And I think we as parents need to be cognizant of that. So if your kid's in three sports and two other extracurriculars and they're getting straight C's, well, I think something's got to give. I think that's the takeaway for me. And I don't want to lose sight of the forest for the trees. I actually want to take a step back and say that this conversation, you can't look at this conversation in a vacuum. This has to be part of your strategy. If you are a 3-5 student or a 3-0 student or a 2-8 student, your life is not over. This is not the end. There is a path for you. Your life is not dictated by your GPA. In the focus of this conversation, though, we are talking about strategy. We're talking about how to get college for free. And the most optimized path to do it would be if you know the rules and you can prioritize this and you can keep your GPA high, if you can crush your SATs, if you can follow the tenants that that Brian laid out in this past week's episode, it is going to be worth somewhere over $100,000 in aid. I mean, it's just, it's incredible between just stacking a few of these together, this patchwork quilt that he described, this is some serious money. There are plenty of people that are college and high school dropouts that are now millionaires and billionaires. There are, there are examples of that. There are other rule books, other playbooks that you can follow and get amazing results. But for the purposes of this conversation, it's not to cover every possible scenario, but it's to take what Brian said and make it relatable and applicable for as many people as possible. If I had a three, five in 2019, there are still options available to me. Uh, you could go to junior college for two years. You could then be guaranteed admission in an in-state college here in Virginia. If you go to Georgia and Florida, there's the bright scholarship that he mentioned that if you have over a three, I think it's like a three Oh or three, two, something like that, you can go to college for free. But for the sake of this conversation today, we've had that conversation before we've talked about that today. What we want to do is we want to talk about essentially back in episode 110, Rocky Lalvani is in the situation where he is a person, an individual of means. Like many of the people in this community, he has saved up a lot of money, but he has. His daughter has it, and he's putting the onus on the child to say, if you want to go to a fancy, expensive college, then you're going to be responsible for figuring out how to pay for it. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to bring you and provide you with the best information possible, but the onus is on you. And to me, as we're now talking about second generation fire, we're talking about cultivating a conversation and watching our child take ownership. It's fine to take ownership, but we got to give them the tools they need, the information that they need so they can tackle this problem. And what an amazing game to tackle. If you see your child take responsibility for this equation and get the results and get out of college without going into student loan debt, get a full ride and not based on their height or or athletic ability. That is the power of this conversation. And that's why, although I believe that there's a path for anybody, I'm putting my own background and experiences aside and saying for this conversation today, Brad, let's pull out the actionable takeaways. Let's talk about crushing the GPA and the SATs. Now that sounds great. And I I think you talked in there, you mentioned the word equation, and that's actually a really interesting word because that stuck out to me. So I think FI is about knowing the rules. This is what we try to do. We try to learn the rules of every aspect of life, and we try to maximize the best we can, or that makes sense according to what we value in life. This is a perfect example with colleges. And Brian talked about specifically a school like Auburn University, or I think someone posted on our Facebook group, I think it was uh, the University of Alabama at Huntsville. So don't quote me on that, but I I think that it was. And they had a published chart. It was essentially an equation, Jonathan, which is if you're in this band, 
of SAT, ACT scores and this band of GPA, then you get this percentage merit eight. And it's clear as day, right? And that's what Brian described with Auburn. And I know in our show notes, we have additional information on other colleges like this. So this is written down, set in stone. If you have these checkboxes, then you get X percent merit aid. That is amazing because I think as Brian talked about, and in fairness, we did spend a decent bit of, of the episode talking about the elite colleges. Cause I think that's where a lot of the attention goes. He was talking about the mainstream media and Huffington Post and, and people talk about how impossible it is to get into colleges, but realistically it's the top 50, 75, maybe even hundred schools that everybody focuses on and focuses on the negativity and the attention of, oh, how hard it is. But if you look outside that, there are plentiful opportunities to get into a college, first off, where it's not impossible, it's not ultra selective, and they're taking 2% of the, the applicants, but also there are plentiful merit aid opportunities. So if you've determined that for your family, college is essential, and you don't wanna pay four years of your life plus hundreds of thousands of dollars, well, you can do that because you know the rules. And Jonathan, to me, that's the key, knowing the rules. And Brad, next I wanna talk about limiting beliefs. I wanna talk about the kid that says, well, I'm just not good at standardized tests, which I understand, it is a limiting belief, and you may have a starting place, and people have different starting places, but the idea that you focusing on this won't make a difference is laughable if you think about it that way. If you own that and you say, again, using this phrase, is the impossible possible or the possible impossible? Drawing on a phrase that we learned from, from Billy, from Wealth Well Done, an episode that we recorded three or four episodes back. Your ability to look at any situation in life and say, what is a story that I tell myself about myself? Imagine being able to own that sentence in your teens, to be able to say, I can learn anything. And I'm willing to put in the 150 some odd hours that Brian recommended, not the thousands, not the unachievable amount of the hours, but frankly, a full-time job for one month, right? And then if you spread that out over a summer, you work on it for a couple hours a day. Brian made this incredibly compelling point in that there's only so many topics that they're going to cover. There's only so many skills that you need to learn. And there's only so many different ways that they can rephrase a question, change the number around. They're tied to these basic you know, equations that they have decided are important for the test. If you can look, break it down into its simplest part, into an achievable problem. I never took a practice test for the SAT. Like, and I did fine on them. I didn't do amazing, but I did fine on them. I did enough to get what I needed to be done. But if I had listened to an episode like this and applied that, or had my parents help me apply some sort of system or process into my summer going into these, into these school years, I would have improved my score at least by a small percentage point. And we say, well, it does a, you know, if you spend your whole summer and you only improve by a small percentage, does that really make a difference? Brian was saying it makes an incredible difference. When you look at the ACT, nobody's getting a one, right? Nobody's getting a one. And if you start out at a 23 and you work your, your tail off, and then at the end of the summer, you go and retake the test and you're getting a 26, well, that may not seem like a huge increase based on the amount of time that you put in, but a 23 puts you in the top one third. A 26 puts you in the top one-sixth, the top one-sixth of students. That's an incredible bump. So the vast majority of people are in the middle. You need to be in the middle. And if you can squeeze an extra one or two points out, I mean, it's not hyperbole to say that that effort is worth tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over your college career and to not have to start with that student loan debt burden because you sacrifice, quote unquote, sacrifice one or two summers. And instead of, you know, working 40 hours, which is great at your entry level 
minimum wage job. And you could still do that. I'm not saying that you can't or shouldn't do that, but by focusing on the fact that, Hey, if I put an equal amount of focus that I do into my sports into improving my SAT and ACT scores by these few points, that's going to be worth 10, 20, a hundred thousand dollars in aid. These are real dollars. Like it's, it's real money that we're talking about here. And it's an opportunity for kids that are at this age range to crush the game. If Brad, like you pointed out, they know the rules. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and this was a really interesting way to look at it, right? Brian said, you don't need to spend a thousand hours or thousands of hours studying for the SAT, ACT. He said, there are 40 grammar rules. There are a couple hundred at most math formulas. If you know those, you're going to do well on those tests. It's knowing the rules. It's understanding what you have to do. You don't need to sit down and relearn everything in math from fifth grade till 12th grade again. You just need to know those couple hundred formulas and you need to take the tests, take real exams and just see what they're like. Inoculate yourself against this unknown experience, right? Jonathan, you went into the SAT completely blind. You had no idea what you're in store for. If you had taken that even once or twice before, it would have been such a known quantity and it would have been dramatically easier. So even just something, the low hanging fruit, right? You talk about 80, 20 analysis. There it is. Sit down and do two practice exams. That's not that hard. Or if you want to expand it to your point, instead of doing an $8 per hour job, right? That is really not going to help you all that much in the grand scheme of life. Treat this as your job for one summer. And, I genuinely hate saying that. Right? It actually hurts me to say, you know, don't get that summer job, but I'm, tr I'm trying to be objective about this because it, you know, it's not binary, get a job or do nothing. But if, if the equation is get a summer job where you're working 10 hours a week at, you know, seven or eight or whatever the minimum wage rate is in your state and do that. And it doesn't have additional benefits. So we're not talking about something that's like an internship that's getting you a role at another company. So, but basically if it's that minimum wage job or crush your SATs, what's going to have more value for you as a student? I think it's pretty self-evident. If you go into this summer with a strategy, that's where I'm coming from. It's not don't work. I love work ethic. I love the idea of kids having jobs, but we're trying to look at this from an economic strategic perspective. And it's pretty compelling math. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, speaking of math, let's look back on like my own career. Again, I've said in passing how I screwed this up seven ways to Sunday in my own life. I was focused on these elite schools for whatever weird reason. And looking back, I could have gotten a merit scholarship at, at many of these schools that had these published records, right, of what you need. And, and me studying for the SAT is the perfect example, Jonathan. And, and, and we're talking here about studying in particular, right? So I actually went into my first SAT sitting pretty much blind, not all that dissimilar to what you did. I did pretty well on the math. I mean, I think I got, I'm looking at the percentiles now is somewhere in like the 88th percentile or something. So of not bad, obviously. Blind 88th yeah. percentile. <laughs> You're destined to be the world's greatest accountant. <laughs> Preordained at 17. Right? <laughs> Manifest no, destiny of Brad. <laughs> but what's funny, I, I'm looking at this as a learning lesson because I got my score back and Jonathan, I tanked the geometry section. That was something that they told you on the, on the score of like, Hey, where did you do well? Where did you do poorly? Like an idiot? I hadn't studied geometry. I hadn't studied it in years. So I just forgot everything. So what did I do? I got a testing book and I went over geometry for, I don't know, a couple weeks at most. And my score jumped up a hundred points, Jonathan, a wow. hundred points to like the 99th percentile. And, and realistically looking at these score ranges, just that little bit of studying would have gotten me a full merit scholarship 
at pretty much all of these schools that have these published records. Just that studying, just a little bit, a couple hours, would have gotten me a full merit scholarship. So you talk about return on investment on your time, and that's crazy, right? It's so funny, Brad, as you're saying this, I, I'm actually remembering sitting down for the standardized test. I think it's ACT, but man, there's a lot of space in here, and I think I just blacked it all out, blurred it all out. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember sitting down on one of these standardized tests, and I was faced with two pages of logarithms. I had just ignored those or had only done one or two questions in passing in terms of prep for it. And I didn't know at the time how to do any of them. And I think I basically said goodbye to 15 equations because I didn't spend the time to learn this one concept that was readily available for someone that was paying attention. You knew that these log equations were coming at you. And I did okay on the test, even with that massive blind spot, but I never went back and retook the test. And honestly, part of this is just knowing that it actually makes a difference with the limited information that I had access to as a teenager. I didn't actually believe that a higher SAT would make a difference. And I don't know that I would have even connected the dots to SAT and merit or needs based financial aid. I mean, that's how naive I was. If you have a strategy, if you realize that it matters and you realize how to take your numbers and allow those numbers to help you tell a story to each college that you're applying to, and it's never been easier. That was the other thing Brian was saying. Good thing, bad thing. When I was going to school, when you were going to school, you had to be intentional about who you were applying to. I mean, it was a process for each one. Now it is just click of a button. How many colleges do you want to apply to? And he was making the case that that is another place where, especially if you're that, you know, that that average or slightly above average student, not in the Brad Barrett class, but you're kind of, you're on the upper <laughs> end. Sorry, Brad, I'm going to keep throwing you under the bus, man. It's just too easy. <laughs> you're awesome oh, though. And your kids are going to crush this game. But you know, if you're on that upper average, then probably the worst financial mistake you could make. And he said not to exacerbate the problem, but you got to play the game and you should absolutely stretch it and take that same application and go ahead and throw that application at a couple additional colleges that you think they might be interested in. Because the, while the acceptance is pretty, you know, pretty much cut and dry down the board, the aid packages can be insanely different. And he said, that's the most surprising thing that one college will accept you with no aid. And then maybe that extra two or three colleges you apply to will give it, give it to you full aid. And I think we have made the case over and over again, like when you look at that elite college that you had to go to, if you look at the additional financial burden that came with it and the benefit, the perceived benefit, when you look back that you got from that, I think you say that you would question whether or not you should have done that and you should have just gone for free, right? Yeah. I mean, personally, yes, that's absolutely the case. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in the FI community are thinking about college and the overall value anyway. So if you can get this for free, that might mean there are thousands of colleges in the U.S. Think about your job. How many people actually care where anybody went to college? I mean, other than the McKinsey's of the world or Goldman Sachs, I can't think of many jobs that anybody cares at all. So to me, what that suggests is, all right, maybe go a little bit, quote unquote, down in the prestige of the college when you're getting ready to apply. If that means you can get massive merit aid. Because again, nobody cares other than the top maybe 10 or so names, the Harvards and Princeton's and Caltech's of the world. Does it really matter, right? And there are so few industries where it really matters. So why wouldn't you do what you can to get a full merit scholarship? And that, again, that this is not just for the tiny little top sliver of people who, oh, poor them, they're going down to the 200th best school in the country. That's not what we're talking about here, Jonathan. We're talking about something that is applicable for everyone. 
If you just look, look for these rules, learn them, go out and spend 50 or whatever hours studying the ACT, the SAT, and getting better at them. And then realizing, okay, maybe I don't have to have, in your case, I don't have to have my heart set on Virginia Tech. Maybe I can go to the next level down, quote unquote down. I, I say this very tongue in cheek and get a full merit scholarship there. This is applicable for everyone in that regard because it's just knowing the rules. So I do not want this to come across as we're talking about this elite, elite sliver because frankly, who cares? That's one or 2% of people and it's really not applicable. But I think this message is applicable to everyone listening to this. And I always want to come back. I just want to balance this out to say that not everyone has to follow the playbook that we are highlighting in this episode. There are other paths there when we've spent entire episodes dedicated to them. And, and in particular, I'm thinking about we just covered how nursing with an associate's degree, you can make upwards of six figures in some parts of the country. We've talked about trade schools and we've highlighted these paths. We've talked about coding schools where you can make upwards of 50,000, upwards of 100,000 with a retraining program where you learn how to code. And obviously we're huge fans of entrepreneurship. All these are valuable paths, but nothing we're saying in this episode in any way says that that's wrong. But what it is, is we are trying to give you the playbook if you are following this path. And specifically, we're normalizing the conversation. That's the attempt here. And that's the part that we've seen in other things. When you can normalize a conversation about personal finances, your retirement portfolio doubles and triples over the next several years. I mean, that's just, that's what happens when you start thinking about this stuff. When you normalize the conversation and you're having these conversations with your kids, with your neighbors, your entire social circle suddenly figures out a way to do what, you know, in, in a year ago was impossible. And I'm thinking if we're talking about rites of passage for second generation Phi, you know, in the past we said, man, wouldn't it be cool if our kids could do a house hack? Like personally, at this point in my life, I don't ever see me doing a live-in house hack. And I think you're probably in the same place, but I'm like, wow, for my son, I would love to help him figure out how to do a house hacking situation as kind of a rite of passage, a second generation Phi rite of passage. But now with this information, and I actually am very curious to bring Laura into this conversation, kind of here on the back end, what's going on in the Barrett household, a rite of passage is helping my son figure out how to crush, crush the cost of college. Not because I'm doing everything for him, but I'm giving him all the information that has come under our purview and I'm helping him build a game plan and I'm watching him grow through the process. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, as far as, as my kids go, I mean, I, th I think we're just trying to be more aware. That's what it boils down to. My daughter, Anna, is going to be in sixth grade. And like Brian said, some of these classes start counting towards high school transcripts. I mean, I don't expect my daughter to get a, a D in the class or anything, but just kind of making her understand that, hey, this really does matter. This is included in your high school transcript. Just even that, that one little cue might make a difference. So we're not trying to make college to be, to be the, the be all end all and, oh, you have to get into the best school. Like, I mean, you know, I, I've talked about this on, on the podcast. Like, I don't really care about that stuff anymore. It just, it doesn't mean anything to me at this point. It, I mean, it used to sadly at some point in my life, but it really doesn't anymore. But that said, I want to give my daughter the best opportunity. And, and I guess that means just being aware of the rules, right? So that's what we're going to do. We're obviously going to help her as much as we possibly can. And having somebody like Brian in our community is going to help my family and so many other families out there. And Brad, as I think through just how our knowledge base has increased over the last two years, personally, as we've gotten the opportunity to interview these incredible people with these amazing skill sets that 
you know, kind of cover the gamut of what you need to know as you're putting together your own personal game plan. It strikes me that back in one of our early episodes, right around episode 25-ish, we were interviewing Paul as a case study and we would bring him on and feature kind of different parts of his financial picture and financial story. And we kind of crowdsourced it. We brought in questions and feedback from the audience and we put together essentially a game plan for him. And we had experts like Big Earn weigh in with sequence of return risk and that sort of thing. But the part that stood out to me in that story, Paul said, I have saved about $40,000 for my daughter's education cost, her college cost. And one of your thoughts at the time in episode 25, based on the knowledge that you had coming into our show, not what you had learned from our show, but coming into our show, I frankly, based on what I've seen, I don't think that's going to be enough money. And from episode 25 to now we're in episode 115, we have tackled that problem from several different directions. And and my question to you is, how do you feel about that statement now? And how would you feel as a parent with $40,000 set aside for your child's education? Yeah, that is amazing to hear. And yeah, I mean, it seems hard to fathom that that was my thought process then, because right now I don't feel that way at all. I think there are many ways to do college for free or pretty darn close to free. And I'd feel very, very confident with $40,000 at this point especially with all of the different tactics, right? I mean, even just down to community college for two years and then transferring to a a four-year university, just something like that. That's half the price of college right there. I mean, just something simple, not to mention all of these incredible merit aid opportunities that Brian talked about. So Jonathan, you know, it's such a cool thing to actually look back on where we were, where you and I were at the beginning of Choose FI. And it's only a year and a half, two years later from when, when we had that conversation with Paul. And it's hard to fathom that that was my thought process in 2017. I think it's neat. I mean, yeah, to be honest, we still are saving in our 529s. This is something I almost need to revisit and just determine like, Hey, does this make sense based on the probability that college is going to be either not in the cards, which I I think that's a small chance, but, but potential, or that my kids are going to get these kind of merit scholarships. I wonder if I'm oversaving in my 529. And and that's not something I'm I'm prepared to really think about or talk about right now, but it's something. It's something that I actually need to contemplate whereas 2 years ago in episode 25, I would have thought I was woefully undersaved and I was kind of just hedging my bets, oh, I'll put some in a 529, but I'll deal with that down the road and we'll see what happens, right? Who knows? eight to 10 years from now when my kids are going to college, what it's even going to look like. I think if you would ask me then, that's the conversation that I would have had, not am I oversaved, right? I never would have thought that was possible. So it's a cool journey. I think that's what's so beautiful about this crowdsourced conversation. And this is not you and I speaking from on high. This is a crowdsourced conversation with the FI community and all the information and intelligence that's within that community we get to bring out and we get to have these people here on the show and it makes our lives better. And I hope that it makes the lives of everyone listening better. And Brad, I'm I'm really excited, you know, not just to bring in feedback from the community on this particular episode, but also just thinking about where this goes in the future, because there are so many people that are skilled at their profession and their profession, their knowledge base, if when they're willing to share it with the larger community has so much value for the rest of us. So, you know, in this case, we're talking about how how college aid and admissions actually works. In other cases, we're talking about career coaches. We're talking about job retraining, recruiters. We're able to talk about 
setting up trust and LLC and business building. And just hopefully what this does, imagine if you're a lifelong learner, if you get excited about the idea of learning everything that you don't know that you don't know, where does this journey take us in a couple of years? But the best part about the Friday Roundup in my mind is that we are able to bring in feedback from our community. And Paul had a wonderful comment and feedback on this episode. In our Facebook group, he posted, Brad and Jonathan have been bringing it with the guests the past two months. Brian was just another example. As soon as he said about how there's guys out there who will tell you there's millions of dollars in unclaimed scholarship, but it's not really so, I was like, yes, a guest who is not selling pie in the sky, rose-colored glasses stuff. Brian is a subject matter expert at a level I expect a subject matter expert to operate Thanks for bringing him on. This was it, man. Brian owns this space. Is Brian going to come on and talk to us about sequence of return risk? No, probably not. But that's fine because he is able to pull back the curtain on how this works. And that's what we needed to know. That's what we needed to hear this week. And I love the idea that we're able to do this in different ways and participate with our own set of focused skills. And one additional comment, and this was in regards to kind of that patchwork approach to scholarships. Mabel said there are a ton of scholarships available, but most are based on income level, GPA, or some other factor. I, for one, had a full scholarship to college plus several smaller scholarships. I had a high GPA, a low income, a minority, Hispanic and female. I had a ton of extracurricular activities and internships. So the scholarships are out there, but you have to find the right ones to apply to. Yeah, and I think this is the case. So we talk about these millions or who knows, hundreds of millions of scholarships that go unclaimed, right? We, we've mentioned that in passing. And a lot of people wonder, where is that money? Can you really put together a patchwork with these little $500 to $1,000 scholarships? And, and Brian was saying the mass amount of scholarships come from the institutions themselves. I would agree with that. I, I'm not sure that I expect my daughters to get $200,000 worth of scholarships from these tiny little $500 scholarships. That doesn't mean they're not worth applying for though. That's the crucial part. It's just, we're trying to paint this picture of what are the facts on the ground? And as Paul said, Brian is the subject matter expert. And he's saying that the vast majority of these scholarships do come from the institutions for many of the reasons that people in this thread mentioned, but a lot of it is merit. And that's what we're learning here. There are published guidelines in many cases at many of these schools that say, okay, this is what equates to this percentage of merit scholarship. And that is a huge piece of information. And Ray Ann says, my daughter started to receive acceptance letters this weekend. We're working on scholarships because she doesn't qualify for financial aid because I remarried to a high earner recently. I saved aggressively as a single mom for 10 years. So between scholarships and her 529, she'll be fine. She'll have to get a part-time job for spending money. I want to add that she was offered over $100,000 in merit scholarships for the colleges she has been accepted at so far. It looks like it may make more financial sense for her to go out of state. We live in California with a lot of top-ranked public schools, but she won't receive any merit financial aid because it's so competitive here. A lot of the UC schools are in very high cost of living areas, even with in-state tuition, living costs for UC Berkeley, UCLA, and UCSD is far higher than the neighboring states. This is it, Brad. If you're planning your strategy out ahead of time, if you know the rules, you know the, the colleges that lean heavily on the merit-based aid and you know have enough room there in their budget to offer that, you can really start to know where to focus your application efforts. Yeah, agreed. This was great. And and I wanted to read Lynn's comment. She said, I absolutely love this episode. And as a mom to sixth graders in New Jersey, it's sad to see parents already stressing their kids out about SATs and ACTs, getting ready for college, et cetera, so early. And I'm so glad that Brian and his wife don't help people that early. 
I'm still floored that his wife took the SATs at eight months pregnant with twins and scored a 1560. Ha. <laughs> pretty, <laughs> How pretty great impressive. is that? <laughs> yeah. And she said, college is so different from when I went in 1992, and I'm gathering up all the information so I can be prepared once my girls need to start prepping in high school. And yeah, that's the key to me. It's just getting this information and then just having it at the ready when you or your family or someone in your life needs it, right? And you can share it with them. And uh, I was so glad that Rocky actually did get a chance to hear this episode. And he said, I've had a hard time finding scholarships that are not needs-based or highly specific to a certain requirement, but I love the episode and the clarity around GPA and test scores being the drive for merit aid, which was really our hope. You know, there are, it's kind of covering just what you need to know so you can figure out your strategy now. And I realized that there's a lot of information covered in 114 and there's going to be more covered today. We actually went to the ends of the earth to flesh out those show notes for you guys so that it will be a constant resource. If you want to share this, if you want to go back and reference this, you can access those show notes at chooseify.com slash 114, chooseify.com slash 114. Most of the links and the resources are all mentioned there for you. So you can start to create your game plan with your child. And Julia weighed in with a comment on the website. She said, I really enjoyed this episode. However, it is worth mentioning Brian's advice on when to study intensely for the ACT and SAT should be challenged. If a student is very high achieving, they should study in the summer following their sophomore year in order to maximize their score on the PSAT during the fall of their junior year. PSAT scores in a student's junior year determines their eligibility for national merit scholarships. Both colleges and corporations offer significant aid based on a student's national merit standing, and this standing is determined through the PSAT taken during the junior year. Julia, awesome feedback and very relevant because we actually asked Brian to come back on the show in this episode to talk in depth about PSATs and national merit scholarships. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And I'm excited. You know, we covered all this actionable content for individuals that are trying to build a framework for crushing college hacking, like doing it at a fraction of the cost. Even when we did that, I knew that there was more based on some of the notes that you had sent us ahead of time and some of our conversations. What we wanted to do today is see, like, what did we miss? You know, in retrospect, what else could we talk about? And then then what I'm thinking about in particular is what are actions that anybody can take, regardless of your grade or GPA, you're in college, you're in the middle of college. What are levers that are available to individuals that are looking to reduce the overall cost of college? What comes to mind? Sure. One shout out I want to give anybody who hasn't listened to the Cody Berman episode that you guys did. He did a great job and he has a great model for a lot of things. CLEP credits, CLEP credits, a dual enrollment can be a very good thing. And those have been talked about on other episodes. One thing that could be probably talked about more. Not This isn't available in every state, but for example, here in Georgia and a number of Southeastern states, there's something called the academic common market, which the details you want to read on the website, but basically the high and low of it is if your home state's school doesn't offer a given major, then there's these reciprocal agreements that some states have come to where the called the academic common market, where it allows you, if you are majoring in one of those majors, Uh, that's not offered in your home state, to get in-state tuition at an out-of-state school that does have that major. Obviously, that takes pre-planning, and you need to not just hope that your kid looked it up correctly. You need to verify with the actual office, yes, this is not offered in our state, and yes, this will be granted, because that would be a big five-figure mistake if not. But we have a couple kids each year who come to us and say, this is my plan, and this is is my how I'm going to save myself. Because it can be an $80,000 delta between four years of or more uh, between the delta of a 
in-state public that you're at versus out-of-state public, you know, 80 to 120K difference in the sticker price. So that's huge. I'm curious about that. Specifically, they don't offer my major. Like, is this incredibly nuanced stuff? Like, I'm getting a major in underwater basket weaving. Why don't you right. offer so, this? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you are going to major in something relatively typical, you know, accounting or finance or English or history, then it's probably not. But if there's certain majors that are specific, I would hesitate to give an exact example, but some of them can be more in the blue collar type majors in terms of farming, agricultural sciences, soil science, and fashion merchandising. You know, things that are a little more niche are the ones where you get away with it. But if a kid knows that they want to do one of those majors, um, their website goes, for the academic common market, goes into a lot of detail. That one requires less pre-planning than some of the academic stuff we talked about in the last episode in that the rules are relatively bright line and established where, you know, the people before you have paved the rule that, yes, we absolutely grant this. No, we absolutely do not grant this. Brian, here in the state of Virginia, so this is like a, a, a little pivot, but there's a guaranteed admissions program between community colleges and the full four-year state universities, such as top-tier ones like UVA and William mm-hmm. & Mary. Do you know of other states that have programs like that? There are. And one relatively less rigorous sort of going in through the side door or the back door is people who plan to transfer. I'll give you one example that's specific to Georgia, where if you want to transfer to the University of Georgia, some people get caught because by the time you transfer, you have to have 30 credits. Now, if you just went for one semester and then wanted to apply, you don't possibly have 30 credits. You have 15 unless you pre-planned, took some summer classes, brought in some AP credits, et cetera. So looking at the transfer rules up front, and I mean up front, meaning a year or two in advance, like if you can tell your kid's GPA is already unfortunately messy enough that certain things are off the table, you start planning your transfer strategy while you're still in high school. Uh, I have kids right now that are taking dual enrollment classes purely because they had some oopses freshman year, and then they are going to be fine as long as they follow through with their plan. But that's the one trap door that catches some people where it stinks if a kid has to go two years instead of one before they transfer. So I would just say in regards of any state, that's a Georgia-specific example, but there's varying credit levels where like you can't be considered for transfer until you have this many credits or certain application deadlines. So watch out for those those trap doors, but it's very doable with pre-planning. I would love to actually get your input, you know, with, with Cody, I believe we talked with him in episode 83 of our podcast. And we talked about a few of the tactics that we went into detail on, but I actually would like to circle back to CLEP and AP and in particular, the AP exam credit process and how an individual can successfully leverage that. Sure. I will give one example and then roll right into talking about AP credits, because the thing about APs is it's not often understood that, yes, it can help you graduate early, but AP credits and AP exams, doing well on them, is sort of like a stem cell where it can take your college path in a number of different ways depending on what you want to use it for. So let me start off by saying, first and foremost, the best financial aid that people, that parents can get, that kids can give their parents, is finishing in four years. Uh, one of my favorite college people in the college industry, his name is Michael Zarek. He wrote a book called College Counseling for the Rest of Us. He said, you know, there's no greater financial aid than finishing in four years. It saves more money and gains more earning potential than any other financial program, grant, award, incentive, et cetera, out there. And it really does. Because we all make jokes about super seniors or super duper duper seniors and people that take six, seven, eight years to graduate that makes the cost go up exponentially, not just the cost, but the opportunity cost and all the compounding of when you could and should be earning money instead, because the true reality of graduation rates is, uh, I don't know the most recent number, but you know the last one I know off the top of my head is you know, in 2012, I think the national average with that school report card that they're having come out every year 
at four-year colleges, four-year degree granting institutions, the four-year graduation rate was around 59%. So that surprises parents because most parents think it's probably going to be around 90. Uh, and only a handful of schools would have that high of a rate. They aren't thinking six years. They're thinking four years because a lot of the metrics you see reported online are not four-year graduation rates. They are six-year, which makes parents even more surprised. So you want to have that conversation about your student being mature and making sure that college is not a six- or seven-year process. And if you plan, if you do some smart things like AP credits and CLEP and dual enrollment and other things, it makes it even easier. Now, when I mentioned how AP exams are like stem cells, uh, it's because it depends what you want to get out of them. Um, they can allow you to graduate early. If you come in with a semester or two of credits, you can graduate in seven or, or six semesters if you wanted to, which especially if you're going to possibly go to graduate school and have another couple of years behind you, that's a nice thing to be able to graduate a little earlier. They also let you have the flexibility to possibly change majors without delaying graduation. Because if you come in with 15 credits and then you change, I really don't want to do this. I really want to do this instead. You're probably still going to be able to graduate on time without too much of a fiasco. It also lets you do a lot of kids. Um, my, probably one of my regrets from high, from college is not doing a study abroad program. But if you come in with 15 or so credits, then you taking a semester and you know, maybe getting not as many credits as you should or would during a study abroad. You know, some some study abroads give credits, some don't give as many. Uh, that's helpful. Or a lot of our Georgia Tech kids uh, here in Atlanta, they'll do a paid. It actually pays quite nicely. A paid co-op during one semester uh, where they'll take a lighter load because they brought in some AP credits, both making money, building internship experience that other kids that are applying against them uh, for jobs and competing with them, they can't compete against that if you have all these awesome co-op experiences. That's another one. In my wife and I's case, AP exams credit that we brought in allowed us to double major. So both my wife and I double majored with a minor and still graduated in four years. Um, you know, Kudos to WashU for having relatively liberal granting policies. You know, We took an extra class or two here or there, but most places you couldn't double major in uh, four years very easily unless you brought in some IP credits. Or finally, you know, a lot of my friends in college were pre-meds. And if you're a pre-med, the MCAT is the scariest thing in the world. So I like standardized tests. I'm good at them. They like me. I like them, uh, except for the MCAT. That is a, <laughs> a beast uh, of a test where the, whatever semester that you are taking the MCAT, if your kid is a pre-med, allow them and don't feel guilty to take a lighter load that semester because it's the equivalent of taking a lot of credits or do it during the summer. But yeah, so I have a lot of friends who they specifically took a lighter load because they knew they were going to be studying for the MCAT. So for a lot of reasons, AP exam credits are important. And you also got to study for them because it's five, four, three, two, one. And some schools, they'll give you credit for a three. At some of the elite schools, they say either you get a five or nothing. And so you have to really at least have an idea of the genre of schools that you're going to be possibly applying to, to know what's good enough. It varies highly. At some places, three is more than enough. You passed. It's called Three is called passing. But at other schools, mostly some of the more elite schools, they will say five or nothing. Sorry. So on the episode that published on Monday, you talked about the big five, right? And you said as part of that number of AP or IB classes, but you didn't mention the grade on the actual AP exam. Does that factor into admissions or is this just for college credit generally? Uh, my answer, honestly, is I wish it did more. Uh, now, every high school or every college rather has their own policy as far as how much they look at it. Some places are drowning in applications where the admissions officers, I think one of the Calif one of the University of California schools just became the first school last year to get over 100,000 applications for one school in one year. Are they going to have time to go through all the nuanced in addition to the SAT, ACT, GPA in your application essays and your resume and everything else? Maybe. But 
the primary value, for better or for worse, to taking AP classes, maybe it shouldn't be, but is getting that GPA boost. The primary value is that. Because if a school chooses not to dig in, now, you know, if you're applying to MIT, you know, they could fill their entire class just with really awesome kids from Chicago if they wanted to. So yeah, the higher ranking you're looking, you, you can't afford to take it lightly. Yes, you do. Don't be that kid getting a one on the uh, you know, AP history exam. But it's looked at less. You know, as Peter Drucker said, what gets measured matters, or it gets managed rather. So because what gets measured gets managed, they all worship, though they say they don't, they all worship at the U.S. News rankings altar. If U.S. News does not use the average AP exam score in their rankings, that's why it takes a backseat to SAT and ACT and what percent of kids in your school are were in the top 10% of their class rank, which are the biggest three numerical metrics from that standpoint. And if I were in charge, if I were you know, Arnie Duncan and I was you know, Secretary of Education, I would try to make schools to the best I could, use them more. Because I think when you ha- when we have some kids who drive into our boot camps who are what I'll call r- uh, rural strivers, you know, kids who come from like cities that aren't big enough to be on Google Maps even, when they take these AP classes, it's a way to show, yes, I might go to a school is pretty challenging, but like I took an online AP class and I got a five on, on Calculus BC. Like I'm doing the best I can given my circumstances. So I wish that schools would do that. And if you are in an area that's pretty remote and your school does not offer a lot of APs, check into what offerings your state has for online offerings. Because at least in Georgia, there are a lot of online APs. You know, it takes a little bit more of a self-starter as a student, but both for getting credits and showing, hey, my high school might only offer four APs. But look what I did. I took some some awesome online ones. I'd love to take a second and talk about the PACT and the relationship between that national merit scholarships. I mean, what this is something that really didn't come up in our conversation earlier, but it's something else you can do. Should you do sure. it? Absolutely. So here's the thing. So the PSAT is the sole entrance point into the national merit competition, the national merit scholarship competition. Now, at some schools, it is a very lucrative thing. At other schools, less so, uh, because the actual award that you get from the National Merit Corporation, if you are so fortunate as to become a National Merit Scholar, they don't really adjust it for inflation. So it's almost the same amount of money now as when Jimmy Carter was president. But at a very certain bucket of schools, they can give you up to everything, including red carpet, here's a laptop, full ride, free room board, everything. So depending, most schools, and if your school doesn't, I would encourage you to be the, the parent that tries to get them to start offering it. Uh, most schools offer it to kids both sophomore and junior year. Uh, your kids should take it. Every year it's offered, if nothing else, to get familiar with the SAT. It's, it's preseason football, basically. It is just the preseason where you're dipping your toe in the water, getting familiar with the format and the mechanics and how the timing works and all that. Now, not being mean, but unfortunately, too many places in America, the PSAT is used wrongfully as a tool to scare parents into buying lots of tutoring. For 90-something percent of America, it is just a great dipping your toe in the water, seeing where you're at. However, the benchmark that we use, and it's a pretty common one that us and other full-time professional tutors use, if your sophomore PSAT score is a 1,300 or higher, if it's a 1,300 or higher, then you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't prepare for the PSAT. So I used to work in corporate strategy. I'm a data analytics guy, and we track our stuff. Only one person since the new SAT, the revised SAT debuted a few years ago, only one person who has had a sophomore PSAT under 1,300 have we seen actually go on to get National Merit Scholar. So we don't feel it's right to tell someone, oh, you have a 1040. If you work really hard, you possibly could. Anything's possible in theory, but from a percentage standpoint, you know, 1,300 is a pretty good bar. So if your kid might have really busy summer plans or fall plans, but is in that range, then they will probably want to find a way to rearrange some of the the obligations they have to do that. Because here's why. There's certain schools, you know, University of Tulsa, University of Alabama, other ones that you might not think off the top of your head, 
Tulsa, I'm pretty certain, has more national merit scholars than most of the Ivy League schools. Not surprisingly, it's because they say, hey, here in Tulsa, if you put us down as we are your number one choice when you do the national merit application, hey, how about everything? And so that is a big deal. There, there I could get you that list for the show notes. Um, there's a lady, I'm blanking on her name, who is sort of the professional maintainer of the list of here's the people that give scholarship money of XYZ for PSAT purposes. Um, so that's important to know about because uh, only 50,000 people in America get it. So the top 16,000 get semifinalist status and the next 34,000 after that get commended. Now, here's the thing. I have a strong opinion on this. Some guidance counselors say that commended, oh, who cares? If only 50,000 people out of 2 million plus get something, that is 20 times more rare than being part of National Honor Society at your school. It's on the par of Girl Scout Gold Award or Eagle Scout in terms of rarity. So if your kid's even close to the commended status, great. Now, is most of the money coming for the semifinalist? It is. So if you're in the semifinalist, then you have to start submitting your application, your essays and your transcript to make sure you have a good GPA. And then it gets whittled down to about 14 or so thousand uh, semi uh, finalists, and then ultimately about 8,000 scholars. Now, those 8,000 scholars are not the only people who get money. So certain employers sponsor their own employees' kids, and they can get sort of through a different side door in the scholarship of competition, assuming that they're high enough. They can do that as well. And certain universities, like the ones I mentioned, and there's probably 50 or 60 schools that have meaningful published, here's the deal, if you get national merit semifinalists and indicate that we're your top choice. Um, so I can get that for you. But that that is a big deal for students who are looking for, uh, who are big game hunting, basically. So Brian, you're talking about listing a college as your number one choice, just from like a, I don't know, a strategy perspective, let's say, like, is there any benefit to not putting Tulsa as your number one, if it's possible that you're going to be a semifinalist? Does Harvard care if you put them number one? I, I can't imagine they do, but it sounds like Tulsa would. Um, I think they saw that. I'd like to think that ethically that Harvard would look at it and realize, wow, this is probably a family who's trying to do the right thing financially. and. And honestly, they might just have too much data to, to sift through at Harvard anyways that they're going to be getting into that level of finite detail. So I, I would say it's either part of your financial strategy or it's not. If you if, if money is no object, then, you know, I guess you could play that. I guess you could say err on the side of caution. But if it is an object, you really want to make sure that you use those little slots that you get really well. You're in school. You're looking for a way to reduce your actual cost of living while you're there. Cody gave us some insights on picking a good job. And I'm curious, anything you want to add to that? And also your perspective on resident advisors. Sure. So I'll give you one funny example, then talk about resident advisor. So if you go to a school that happens, university that happens to have a med school or a really good psychology department or both, there are these studies that are well-funded by NIH grants and whatnot. My favorite two hours I spent, you can't even make this stuff up. Uh, there was a study being done at the Washington University Med School where it wasn't Sudoku, but it basically was. I got to sit. There was this little flyer that got passed around undergrad campus, and it said, hey, you do a two-hour MRI, so there's no radiation, no harm there. You do a two-hour MRI where you play games and it's inside of MRI, and they play different types of music, upbeat versus slow ballads, whatever, and they wanted to see how well you could do these different tasks and these cool games. 200 bucks, two hours cash done. That, you know, that, that was my social life budget for a few <laughs> weeks there. So that exists at a lot of campuses. If they have uh, life sciences, med schools, you know, psychology experiments are always very popular. You know, so that's, that's one thing. Cause I mean, that is great. I mean, if you're, cause oftentimes you just get on the listserv and they email you whenever they have some stuff available, cause they have to have, you know, enough subjects for their study and blah, blah, blah. Now resident advisor though, that is the big one. And that's probably one thing that's not discussed 
in, in the different literature and the different blogs that I follow in my professional areas, it's huge. I did resident advisor for two and a half years and I saved myself a fortune. So at Wash U, where I went to undergrad, Washington University in St. Louis, you know, room and board now is almost $20,000 a year. And if you get, even at cheap places, you know, room and board, it's going to cost in the low, low five figures. So if you get to be an RA, a resident advisor, some schools, they only allow juniors and seniors to do it. Other schools let you do it sophomore and junior and senior year. So up to two or three, it could mean up to two or three years of room and board and also other free items, sometimes like parking passes, they waive your internet and connectivity fees and, and whatever. So if you do it for three years at a school that lets you, you could be saving, you know, between 30 and, you know, high fifties, thousands of dollars. So that's one of the largest scholarships out there. And that's not based on an SAT, ACT score. And I will tell you it's competitive And depending on the school, you have to start planning your application early on. You want to be a known entity to the residential life office, but for the right reasons, not someone who's getting in trouble or whatever. You can't be anonymous. If the first time the residential life ever hears of you because you're not involved in anything much on campus or in the dorms, that's a bad sign. But you don't want to overdo it. You don't need to be Reese Witherspoon's character from election. You don't need to be doing that. But And you also don't want to be getting in trouble. But by doing that, you can really save a ton of money and in my case, I got to pick my room first. I was a returning resident advisor. Hey, where do you want to be? I want to be on this building because then I have a really short walk to campus. Awesome. Boom. Done. But if you don't think about applying for it until the first day that the application opens late sophomore year, the competition mostly has already been over. Uh, so you want to plan that ahead of time. And fam- you know, families should talk about that. You know, Once they figure out my kid is going to XYZ school, let's research how that works, how that pro- application process works in advance. And, and it's not for everybody. If you're a super painfully shy introvert or you don't want to have to be dorm dad, dorm mom, you know, sort of policeman sometimes, you know, it's not that bad of a deal. If you set the tone right in the beginning of the year, it's it's really not as much work as people think. And you know, compared to you know non-glorious tasks like reshelving books at the library, it pays better per hour. It's a heck of a lot more fun, and you you make a lot more money or save a lot more college costs doing so. It's amazing, Jonathan, how you never think of something until you do, and then it's just obvious, right? Brian just said being an RA is one of the biggest scholarships you can get. They're like that never would have crossed my mind. But yeah, that's potentially a $60,000 scholarship over two to three years. That's crazy. Yep. But I also want to reiterate, it's also not just, hey, I'm an RA, I live here. I mean, there is like an hourly component to the, it's a high paying one. Is it 40 hours a week? Is it 20 hours a week? And can you have another job while you're doing that? Or you're all in on that hand? I'm sure different schools have different rules about that. I, I would say certain weeks are crazy. Certain weeks are not. But if you average it out, if you do a good job, if you put your heart into it, you know, making the connections and really getting to know the kids and setting expectations in the beginning, then it's not as many hours. You know, I probably spent 10 or 12 hours a week doing it. But the difference is, what if I had shelved books for 556? That was the rate when I was a high, when I was in college for the federal work study shelving books in the library job. That's 55 bucks a week or so, 200 bucks a month. You know, during the academic year, that's going to make you 1600 bucks. That's nothing. I love your perspective. I'm really grateful that you came on the show and shared these additional tips with us. Any final takeaways to our listeners? Final thoughts from Brian? Yeah. So if you want to, you can follow our Facebook page. We try to share a blend of academic stuff as well as college affordability stuff. Facebook, we publish every week on the Edison Prep Facebook page. As far as the blog posts, we try to make those meatier, about three or four blog posts a year as we aim for, and they're more data rich and more strategic. Um, so you can also you know, just bookmark that and go to the, to the blog from time to time. Awesome. EdisonPrep.com. Brian, thanks for coming back on, man. Yeah. Happy to be here. 
I tell you, Brad, Brian is like a hurricane of information. The reason that we had to, <laughs> we had to like split this up into two parts because it was just so much. I just needed to be able to digest that before I could come back and grab onto PSATs and National Merit Scholarships, but wildly beneficial and certainly an extra piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's amazing. I cannot believe how much information he has in his head. And and yeah, it's just coming at you nonstop. I mean, I had to listen to the Monday episode twice. I'm sure I'm going to have to listen to this a couple of times. So yeah, it's good stuff though. All right. Now for the last part of this episode, what we wanted to do is talk about the community, the financial independence community that is spreading around the world. And I mean this quite literally, Brad, I was copied on a link in our admin group, the financial independence group in Scandinavia just passed 1000 members, a thousand members of people in Scandinavia talking about this exact topic. That is surreal to me. Yeah, Jonathan, this was awesome. Julia posted in our admins group and she was talking about two articles that appeared in the Swedish newspaper that she reads. It was really, really incredible. Just talking about how this movement is growing around the world. And it said the groups who are steadily attracting new members have names like FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early, and Choose FI, Choose Financial Independence. The message is the same. Save your money, make smart investments, and become free to do what you want with your life. Jonathan, I couldn't come up with a better summation of it, right? That is the perfect messaging. Well done to the reporter that covered this. That's exactly what this is about. It's not overly complicated. It's just how do you make more, spend less, and enjoy the journey? I mean, that, that's, it's that simple. I love that you're seeing people from all over the world grab onto this and say, we want this in our life. We want this in our community. We want our friends to experience this. And we want to do that. We don't want to do this in a vacuum. We want to normalize this conversation and work on these common goals together. And with that in mind, I, I just want to mention just a few other things that are going on this week. Uh, the Chooseify admins group in Buffalo, New York, had a brainstorming session and are excited about 2019 after kind of coming together on some ideas that they want to accomplish, they're reaching out to their members for their very first meeting. The Chooseify Dubai group is having a huge event this week. Uh, They are expecting up to 400 people at this space. Houston had their first board game day and they're actually hosting Alan Donegan in February. This is going to coincide with a pop-up business school that's actually going to be happening in that area. And I know a lot of the members of that group are planning to attend at least one of those sessions. Chooseify Northern New Jersey had a meeting with another Facebook group and a bigger pockets group. 31 people attended. Denver and Flagstaff are meeting for coffee uh, this upcoming week. Connecticut has a meeting on February 23rd for taxes, which honestly, I know in most communities, like really in the FI community, we get very, very excited about having accountants tell us about taxes and taxes for people in the financial independence community. With the Northern New Jersey group, they're having their first real estate investment meeting on February 27th in Clifton, New Jersey. And this is actually going to be featuring Sonny and Sunmarie Burns, who are guests on Bigger Pockets episode 120. And then Choose FI in DC, the DC group is meeting on February 23rd. There's a lot of activities and Really, you need currently, and this is an unfortunate thing, you need to be in one of these local groups on Facebook in order to see these when they actually come live. To access the Facebook groups, you can just go to chooseify.com slash local, find a group in your area. We are working in the mid to short term, probably I would say middle to end of the year to get a calendar of outside events so you can find them even if you're not on Facebook. But in the meantime, in order to be in these local groups, you you do need to be in the Facebook group currently. And finally, there is a brand new group, Chooseify Southern Oregon. If you are in that area hearing this, they would love to connect with you. They're trying to find people in their area and we'd love to see, yeah, we'd love to see our listeners in Oregon, check that out and get involved. So Brad, I mean, just, it's incredible. We have made this a focus 
because we know these incredible things are happening all over the country, but how do you document it and help more people experience it? One of the ways to do it in my mind and your mind was just, let's talk about it on the show. Yeah, indeed. And this is just a tiny little smattering of what's going on across these almost 200 groups across the world, but it's fun to highlight. And if you are someone in, I don't know, the Choose a Five Vermont group or anywhere across the world and you're hearing, oh, wow, you mean the Houston group had a board game meetup and we actually had one here in Richmond. Someone, one of our members just decided, hey, I'm going to set up a meetup and we're going to have board games. Anybody who wants to show up shows up. I think 10 or 15 people showed up and they had a Ball. They had a, just a grand old time. And if you are in another group and you hear, hey, they're doing this, why can't we too? We'll do it. That's the cool thing. And I think, Jonathan, that's the strength of, of highlighting just what's going on in the world. And the couple that I wanted to hone in on were the, the pop-up business school actually in Houston. So Alan Donegan is going to be here in the U.S. for a couple months, and he's doing pop-ups all over the place. And I know not only are we going to have people from Choose If I Go and attend, but more importantly, they're going to help the attendees. They're going to help mentor them. They're going to help talk with them and answer any questions that they have about personal finances. So Chooseify is really connecting with Alan and Papa Business School to really help provide a support network. And I think that's awesome. And I know when Alan, Alan's going to be in California. So the San Diego group, the LA group, they're going to connect with him. There's a lot of fun stuff going on around that. And you had mentioned DC. I think you're going to be up in DC in early March, right? Yes, March 8th, I believe, is a Friday. Yeah, March 8th, I'm going to be joining Grant from Millennial Money and Cody Berman, and they are. we're going to be meeting up with the uh, the Chooseify DC group, and I think we're expecting somewhere between 150 to 300 people, and we're just going to have a really awesome night. I'm very excited about that, but getting an opportunity to do some of these different meetups is just, it's, it's special, man, and it's just growing and growing. And for people, for context, I wanted to go back to what you were saying about Alan. Alan has been so wonderful and generous with both Chooseify and the Chooseify community. He has come on the show probably five or six times now. But if you're trying to find out more about what he's doing and why we're so passionate about connecting with him and supporting his efforts, go listen to episode 30 of our podcast, which is him explaining how to start a side hustle without going into debt, how to start a business without going into debt, flipping the business model on its head much in the way that we are talking about understanding and demystifying the college admissions and aid process. Um, it's just yet another wonderful concept and idea, and he is a fantastic person. And with regards to the board games, Brad, as we bring this episode to a close, I both wanted to give you a shout out and also claim my victory because I came to your home about a week or two ago and we played Splendor and I crushed you. <laughs> I absolutely crushed you and it was so much fun, but I need to put that right next to the fact that we played Connect Four. And I think when it comes to Connect Four, you might be like a savant. I swear, dude, I could just, <laughs> like you were freaking me out just with like, you were second guessing my moves. You were telling me when the game was over and I didn't know it. It was, it was <laughs> the most terrifying Connect Four game I've ever played in my entire life. And I'm like really wanting to play another one just because I think if I play enough, eventually there's a chance I might tie you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying yeah. there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but you see I the think, pattern, dude. It's freaking oh, terrifying. It's crazy. Yeah, Connect Four is like one of the things that I'm best at in the world, which is sad that that's on the list. But I love that game. And yeah, Jonathan, it's so funny now. You broke the game of Splendor for us because now we call it pulling a Jonathan. So. <laughs> Are you telling me that I have my own name for something when you, when you break the game, that's, that's pulling a Jonathan, just being, being good at something is, is a John, you know what, Brad, you know what? I'll take it. 
Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. I know you came up with a great strategy. And, and it's funny because we've only played that game Splendor with four people. And the pulling a Jonathan methodology doesn't work with four people. But with three people, it works 100% of the time. So we cannot play the game with three people anymore <laughs> because you broke the game for us. <laughs> you know what I'm going to have to do? Like, and now I'm going to need like create like a paid course and I'm going to teach people my secrets for $5.95 <laughs> a month. That's the plan. <laughs> oh man, this episode so much fun and I'm just so happy with how it came together. I hope it's provided as much value for our community as it did to us personally. If you got value from today's episode, press one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just let the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. Brad, before we finish the show, we are doing a uh, drawing. We did a drawing this past week for several copies of Tanya Hester's new book, Work Optional. And today on the show, I'd love to announce the winners. Are you ready for that? Yeah, Jonathan, it was amazing how many people submitted an iTunes review and sent them into us. Tanya was so nice, obviously, to give away five books. And because we had such an overwhelming response, we're going to give away an extra book. So six total winners here. We put this into a randomizer. And the six winners are Christine F., Mridul J., Michael P., Rebecca D., Rachel T., and Jessica R. All right. If you heard your name in this drawing, please go ahead and send us an email at feedback at choosefi.com. Just giving us your mailing address so we can get these books out to you. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.